So the origins of this talk goes back to a trip I took in 2009 to Asuncion in Paraguay to speak at the uh, Mennonite World Conference Assembly, which is a huge international gathering held once every six years. And this year, this year is always dotted around the world, and this year was in Paraguay, uh, and there were 6,000 people there. So I sometimes say that I have spoken to audiences ranging from two to 6,000, uh, and it's pretty much the same both ways. This was an occasion where I had a very large audience. The text I was given to speak at uh, on this conference, they told me what they wanted me, it was part of a series of plenary addresses, they gave me the text they wanted me to speak on, was the text from Ephesians 4, 1-6. to And uh, I found in the months leading up to the conference, spending time sort of meditating on this text and, and doing the kind of the, the uh, academic work on it as well, incredibly rewarding. And so I think what I, 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 I came to speak about this text fits so well with our our theme this, this weekend, that I thought it would be worth using this as the, as the, um, the focus for, uh, if you like, the theology of peacemaking. So I'm going to ask Margaret to read the text out. It's on your handout. Uh, I've included a couple of other little texts that I mentioned in passing, but it's particularly the first uh, passage from Ephesians 4 that I'm going to be spending time on. I therefore, the prisoner in the Lord, beg you to lead a life worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and justice, with patience, bearing with one another in love, making every effort to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called to the one point of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is above all and through all and in all. The letters of the Ephesians opens with Paul's customary greeting, and it's on your handout, Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. It closes on a virtually identical note, Peace to the whole community and love with faith from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, Grace be with you all who have an undying love for our Lord Jesus Christ. The words grace, peace and love are singled out for mention at both the beginning and the end of the letter. This is significant for the bookends of an epistle, how the letter begins and ends, often gives us an important clue as to the author's intention in the work. In the case of Ephesians, Paul bookends, Paul's bookend signals that his overriding concern in the letter is to expound the gospel as a demonstration of God's boundless grace, love and peace, concepts that recur over and over again throughout the document. In the first half of the epistle, chapters 1 to 3, Paul recounts the glorious grace that God has shown in sending Jesus to secure the healing of the broken universe and to make peace between hostile peoples. He reminds his readers of the transforming impact that God's gracious initiative has had on their own moral and spiritual experience. 
once they were alienated from God, devoid of all hope in the world, and subject to the rule of dark spiritual forces that kept them in a state of living death, puppets to their own sinful passions. But now, as a result of God's immeasurably rich grace and immense love, they have been set free from spiritual oppression, pardoned of their sins, adopted as God's children, filled with the Holy Spirit, incorporated into the commonwealth of God's people, and infused with expectancy for the future. For by grace you have been saved through faith, Paul exalts, and this is not your own doing, it is the gift of God, not the result of works, so that no one may boast. It is 100% pure, unadulterated, life-giving, freedom-creating, liberating grace. In the second half of the letter, four, chapters 4 to 6, which begins with this passage that we just had read to us, Paul spells out the implications of God's gracious, gracious salvation for how his readers should live their current Christian lives. The passage opens with the significant little word, therefore, in verse 1. I, a prisoner of the Lord, therefore beg you to lead a life worthy of the calling to which you have been called. As is often the case, this therefore, this little three-letter conjunction, in Greek at least three letters, is incredibly important. It refers back to all that Paul has said in the first half of the letter. In light of all that I've said so far, I beg you to live appropriately. Paul holds theology and ethics inseparably together, and nowhere more clearly than in Ephesians. On the one hand, good theology, right belief, true knowledge of God, must issue in transformed ethical living, otherwise it is pointless and powerless theory. The final test of truth is not philosophical or logical coherence, important though they are, but moral transformation. But at the same time, good ethics depends on good theology. Sound ethical behaviour is enriched and empowered by true insight into God's truth. For Christian ethics is not conformity to a set of rules, but a way of life that is consistent with the knowledge of God disclosed in Christ and infused with the Spirit. The therefore in Ephesians 4 beckons his readers to recall two main thoughts from Paul's previous discussion. The first, interestingly, is Paul's own apostolic role and experience. Paul frames his appeal in strikingly personal terms, using the emphatic personal pronoun ego, again in Greek. So it reads, the force is something like, Therefore I, a prisoner of the Lord, beg you. It's me who is imploring you. Paul tells his, uh, Paul speaks to, to the readers not as one believer among many, but as the apostle to the Gentiles one who is possessed of unique insight into this mysterious thing that God has done through his Messiah to unify Jew and Gentile. Although, a text is on your page, although I am the very least of all the saints, 
that grace was given to me to bring to the Gentiles the news of the boundless riches of Christ and to make everyone see what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God who created all things. Paul considers himself, in other words, to be a reliable mediator of what he calls the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation. So his appeal to his readers carries distinctive weight. It's me as the mediator of this mysterious truth that's calling you to uh, respond this way. But significantly, it's not Paul's own unique revelatory role, his place in the disclosing of of, uh, truth that is the thing that Paul draws his readers' attention to. Rather, what he draws their attention to is his patient, suffering witness as a prisoner of the Lord, as one who at the very time of writing is suffering for you, which is your glory. Uh, I used to think when Paul called himself a prisoner of the Lord, he's speaking metaphorically, but he was actually in prison. I mean, he was actually in chains when he wrote this. So he's mentioning his, his, his literal imprisonment not to carry feelings of sympathy from his readers, but to attest to his own faithful embodiment of the inescapable paradox that lies at the heart of the gospel. The inescapable paradox that lies at the heart of the gospel. What is that paradox? It is the fact that, to use the language of 2 Corinthians 4, this extraordinary power from God is experienced in weak, fragile, defenseless jars of clay, in mortal bodies that still suffer and die. By referring to himself as a prisoner in the Lord, or later as an ambassador in chains, Paul highlights the suffering, weakness and affliction that characterise his apostolic ministry. Yet, in the same, self-same letter, he speaks exultantly of the, quote, immeasurable greatness of his power in us who believe, according to the working of his great might, a power demonstrated in Christ's exaltation from death to the place of universal lordship. It is a power that prevails against every spiritual evil, a power that strengthens one's inner being and enables us to be filled with all the fullness of God. Or again, a power at work within us that is able to accomplish abundantly, abundantly far more than... Oh, I could heal my speech. Abundantly far more all than we can ask or imagine. The power of the gospel then is clearly not the power of coercion or control or command, the power of violence that seeks exemption from suffering by ensuring that one has the means to make other people suffer instead. Paul has no power to avoid being in prison. The power of the gospel, rather, is a peaceful power. It is a power in weakness. It is a power of moral transformation and spiritual freedom at work within us to accomplish abundantly far more than we can ask or imagine. So the first thing then that this little word therefore, when he's referring his readers back to what he said, the first thing he's recalling for them is his own 
paradigmatic experience of non-retributive apostolic suffering in fidelity to the gospel. The second thing he recalls is the Ephesians' own experience of this powerful, liberating grace and power. In view of what God has done for you, Paul says, you must now commit yourselves to a new way of living, or again, literally, it's walking, a new way of walking in the world. You must strive, verse 1, to lead a life worthy of the calling to which you have been called. You must strive to lead a life worthy of the calling to which you have been called. This is actually the central command. In fact, it's the only imperative in this passage. Paul pleads with his readers to fashion lives that are consistent with the grace and love and peace they have received from God. In short, he calls upon them to practice what they preach. They have been saved by grace and not by works. That is true. But the purpose of being showered in such grace is that now, recreated in Christ Jesus, they might do good works and walk in them. That's the part of this text that evangelicals have always failed to quote. They quote the first part of it, be saved by grace and not by works. They don't finish the sentence. Uh, The sentence says, in order that you may now do good works and walk in them. It's a feature of Paul's theology that Protestants and evangelicals in particular have not always recognised. Faith and works cannot be separated. It is not enough to know the truth of God's saving grace in our heads and hearts alone. We must live it out in daily moral experience. Or as we would put it today, at least in the academy, our ethics must match our theology. And since our theology is all about God's grace and peace and love, so too must be our ethics. How does it work? What does it mean in practice to lead a life worthy of the calling to which you have been called? Well, in this passage in Ephesians 4, well, in fact, throughout the, 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 um, the letter, but in this passage in Ephesians 4, it means one thing above all others. What does it mean to live a life worthy of a calling? It means above all others being committed to reconciliation and peacemaking, especially within the family of the church. It means, verse 3, making every effort to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. This is something that, and I was speaking to a Mennonite audience, I had to say this, this is something Mennonites have always taken seriously. Mennonites have rightly insisted that a dedication to peacemaking and reconciliation is not an optional extra for disciples of Jesus Christ. It is indispensable to Christian faith. It lies at the very heart of Christian discipleship. Without a commitment to peace, we deny the very gospel of peace. That phrase is used in Ephesians 6.4. We deny the very gospel of peace we proclaim. Without it, our Christian lives are, put simply, unworthy of the calling to which we have been called. 
Our theology is mere theory, and our ethics is severely truncated. For that reason, Mennonite believers have been at the forefront of peacemaking, conflict resolution, and hostile environments all around the world, which is something they may be deeply proud of, though, of course, in a very humble Mennonite kind of way. (laughs) But the point to note here is that the call to Christian peacemaking in this passage relates, first and foremost, to relationships within the community of faith. Certainly, we must be agents for peacemaking in the wider world. But we will never be credible as peacemakers in a violent world unless, within our own Christian congregations and between our larger churches and denominations, we make every effort to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Of course, as we know only too well, at times, perhaps most of the time, our churches appear to be as bitterly divided and painfully crippled with conflict as is the the wider world. Within local congregations, there are often broken relationships and unhealed hurts that alienate believers from one another. And between larger Christian denominations and theological traditions, there has been a shameful history of rancorous disagreement, competitive rivalry, and even of violent bloodshed. Nothing has done more to damage the cause of Christ in the world. And nothing has more deeply stained the reputation of Christ's followers than our involvement in violent or hateful conflict with one another. I can't help but think of the message that the North American white evangelical community sends to the world at this point. Nothing is more detrimental to the interest of the gospel than an unwillingness by those who claim Christ to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Yet Paul calls on us to make every effort to maintain the unity of the Spirit. And the the verb there has the force of being so eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit that we expend every ounce of energy to achieve it. But how do we do that? What does it require of us to heed this call, to be people who strive tirelessly and zealously to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace? Our text, these these six verses, mention three things that we need if we are to fulfil this command. The first is we need to be absolutely clear on the content of our Christian calling. Paul implores the Ephesians to lead a life worthy of the calling to which you have been called. And later he speaks of the one hope of your calling. What is this calling? If we are to live worthy of our call, then we need to know exactly what the call is. Well, the answer to that question is found again in the first three chapters of the epistle. There, Paul explains that believers are called to participate in and reap the benefits of God's great work of healing the universe through Jesus Christ. God's ultimate intention in salvation, Paul explains at the very beginning of the letter, 
is to unite all things in Him, things in heaven and things on earth, which means surely to heal every rupture in the universe, to bring violence and antagonism to a definitive end forever, and to restore universal harmony to creation. And we are called to be part of it. We are called to know the mystery of salvation and to make it known to others. We are called to tell and retell the story of God's reconciling love and healing grace in Jesus Christ, to proclaim to the whole world the one who came, 2.17, who came and preached peace to you who are near and peace to those who are far off and who brought hostility to an end through his body on the cross, thus making peace. The calling to which we have been called then is the call to be involved in God's unifying, reconciling, peacemaking program in Jesus. We are quite simply called to peace, according to 1 Corinthians 7.15, which means that to lead a life worthy of our calling is to lead a life of peacemaking, a life in which we practice unifying, restoring, reconciling grace in all our relationships with one another, and especially in the body of Christ. Which leads to the second thing we need to do if we are to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. We must intentionally cultivate in ourselves, as individuals, those qualities of Christian character that are consistent with our calling. We must work diligently at developing those personal virtues and graces that are crucial to achieving reconciliation in situations of tension and turmoil. Our passage mentions four virtues in particular. Humility, gentleness, patience and tolerance. When these four virtues are present, when these moral disciplines are actively cultivated, it's possible to overcome any conflict and to heal any hurt that might occur in our communities. Humility means having an appropriate view of one's own weaknesses and faults and limitations. Gentleness means doing nothing to deliberately hurt or humiliate the other person. Patience means a readiness to endure the discomfort of conflict without lashing out in anger. And tolerance means making room for those we may disagree with and who we may not even like very much. That's hard to say but to whom we are eternally bound by our common calling in Christ, whether we like it or not. This brings us then to the third crucial requirement for sustaining Christian unity and peace. As well as being clear in our calling, which is to be part of God's peacemaking program, and clear on the Christ-like qualities of character we must cultivate in ourselves as disciplines. We need to be, thirdly, crystal clear about what the church is and what it truly means to, to, be, to be members of the body of Christ. 
It's hugely significant that Paul tells his readers here not to create the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace, but to maintain it. The unity of the church is not something we manufacture by being unusually unusually nice to one another. It is something that already exists. It is an objective reality effected by the Spirit of God Himself. Notwithstanding the church's immense diversity and its often fractious history, the truth is that there is only one body and one Spirit, just as there is one Lord and one God and Father of us all. The word one recurs no fewer than eight times in three verses. It is desperately important to Paul. The oneness of the church, Paul insists, is is every bit fundamental to Christian belief, as is the oneness of God and the Lordship of Christ. Why is that so? Why does Paul see the oneness of the church as being a divine reality that is so central to Christian understanding or doctrine. There are, I suggest, and that's that's the complicated here, two reasons about this third thing of two points that Paul is making. There are two reasons why, in Paul's mind, there can only be one church. There can only be one church. The first reason is because the church belongs to Jesus Christ and there is only one Jesus Christ. The church is not a human institution or an organization or a club or an association of like-minded individuals or even a global communion of our particular denomination. According to Paul, and Paul is the only one who uses this metaphor, according to Paul it is the very body of Christ. The church is the embodiment of Jesus Christ on earth, the visible expression of Christ's own personal presence in the world. It comprises of those who have been united personally with Christ through one faith and one baptism, and who are therefore inextricably united to one another. Paul never tires of stressing the oneness of the church, simply because it is a church of Christ, and there is only one Christ, and Christ is only one body, and that body is his one church. The other reason why the oneness of the church is so critical for Paul is because of what the church itself represents in the saving purposes of God. I said a moment ago that according to Ephesians, God's ultimate intention in salvation is to heal every wound in the universe to bring tribalistic violence and antagonism to an end forever, and to restore universal concord to all creation, or to use his words, to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. This is the hope of our calling, the hope of witnessing creation's ultimate healing and restoration in Christ. But this great hope of cosmic reconciliation is not simply a hazy dream for the far distant future. The good news of the Gospel is that it has already commenced 
cosmic restoration is already underway. It has already started to impinge directly on human experience, bringing dramatic and powerful change even now. This in the trade is called inaugurated eschatology, so the, the hope of the future, according to the gospel, is actually beginning to manifest itself even in the present. Question, where? Where is this healing of the universe to be seen now? Where is this change happening? Well, the totally surprising answer is in the church. God's ultimate saving purposes for Paul are made transparent in the existence and character of the church. For the church is the new kind of human society, one that is held together not by the bonds of race or class or language or nationality or culture, but by the bond of peace. That is, by the unique bond of fellowship forged by the peace-working work of Jesus Christ on the cross. The church, and I guess in some ways it's easier to understand this if you put yourself right back in the first generation and sort of forget the kind of 2,000 years of catastrophe afterwards. But if you go right back to the beginning and think of what the church was in its own day and why for Paul it was so significant, the church is the only kind of human community that is not racially defined or class defined or gender defined or law defined or culture defined or occupation defined or even religion defined. The church is Christ defined. It derives its identity solely from its living union with the singular person of Jesus Christ an identity that transcends all other human distinctions of race, class, nationality, or culture, and thus provides a unique basis for human solidarity. Put simply, the multiracial church represents and prefigures the final unifying of all things in creation. The church is the fellowship of all those who share the common experience of being reconciled to their created God through Jesus Christ, and who discover in that common experience a new basis of human kinship with one another. That is why there can only be one church, because by definition the church is a community of the reconciled, and a divided community of the reconciled is a contradiction in terms. The church of the reconciled must, of theological necessity, be a single, unified, reconciled body, a community of the reconciled and of reconcilers. So then, Paul insists that there is only one church, there is only one body of Christ, there is only one Holy Spirit who indwells the body, just as there is only one Lord and one God and Father of us all. It can be no other way. The unity of the church is a divine fact, for Christ cannot be divided. But this objective unity is something we must maintain, we must preserve or keep. 
we must live out the spiritual oneness of the church at an ethical and practical level. A common union in Jesus must become visible in a steadfast commitment by every believer in every congregation, in every Christian denomination, in every place, at every time, to confront the strife and discord that inevitably arises in a community in a way that makes for peace, to deal, to deal with our conflicts and differences in a way that refuses hatred or malice or bitterness, but instead practices humility, gentleness, patience, long-suffering and grace. Of course, that is never easy and it is never cheap. Maintaining the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace is difficult. So difficult that it requires us to make every effort to achieve. Christian unity is costly because the peace that Christ demands is always a just peace. It is not simply the cessation of conflict, not the three parts of the uh, window that we had this morning. It's not simply the cessation of conflict, but the positive attainment of relationships of equality, justice, mutual respect, dignity and freedom. To attain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of Christian peace obliges us to speak the truth to one another in love, to speak truthfully of the hurts and wrongs and sins that divide us, but always to do so in a spirit of love and with the intention of building up the body in love, not of winning our corner. And I should say, just in passing, speak the truth in love is a phrase you should probably avoid using because people have a reputation of using that phrase in order just simply to speak the truth by itself. Um, but if we take it seriously, the idea of speaking the truth in love is a much more uh, demanding uh, commitment. A few people say to me, maybe somebody comes up to me and says, I've got to speak the truth to you in love. I duck for cover because I know what's coming. <laughs> so I'm going to finish now. You endured well. The text from Ephesians 4 opens the second half of this soaring, majestic epistle to the Ephesians, in which the Apostle summons his readers to live a life worthy of their calling. And what that means in practice is a steadfast determination to honour the unity of Christ's body by cultivating relationships of humility, gentleness, patience and forbearance. In the remainder of the chapter, Paul continues to labour the importance of his readers pursuing a way of life that reflects the way, this is uh, from verses 19 to 21, the way they learned Christ. I love that phrase. The way they learned Christ and heard about him and were taught in him, for the truth is in Jesus. The chapter ends as it begins with a listing of the virtues and moral disciplines we must cultivate and practice if we are to bear witness to the truth that is in Jesus. Put away all bitterness and wrath and anger and wrangling and slander together with all malice and be kind to one another. 
tender-hearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ has forgiven you. Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children and live in love as Christ loved us and gave himself for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. Amen. Yes. Yes.